0: James Crawford, and John McCarthy. Well, good afternoon, everybody. It's great to be here at the, the Destinations Travel Show, and particularly great to be here now with James, or Jamie Crawford, because he has written a most fabulous fantac- book, which um, is a wonderful travel book, um, insofar as it takes us to lots of wonderful places around the world, to wonderful buildings, but also takes us on journeys back deep into history and then brings the history of those ancient places, often ruins or even just memories, it back to the, to the present day, often through the personal stories of the people who built them and indeed through the people, the personal stories of the people who've rediscovered them. It is wonderful. So I, I'm, I'm shamelessly plugging the book because I think James not only come up with a brilliant idea, but he's a brilliant writer and he's chosen some remarkable buildings that we're we're only going to be able to focus on a few of them in our 45 minutes or so with you this afternoon. Jamie started his uh, professional career as a literary agent. He's now a publisher, but also, thankfully for us in particular, he's a very fine writer. So anyway, that's brilliant, Jamie. But first off, this story, this book, Fallen Glory, about these 20 remarkable buildings and ideas from across, across the world and across the millennium of, of, of humankind. It's a wonderful idea, but where, when, did you, when did it come to you?
1: Uh, it really comes from a, a trip to uh, Crete uh, around sort of, 10, 15 years ago. And I went to the site of Knossos in Crete. Which, and I went there because I've always been fascinated by classical classical mythology. Um, and, of course, Knossos is the, the, the fabled lair of the Minotaur. It's where Icarus flew too close to the sun, where, where Daedalus, Icarus, his father, created the labyrinth. So really, it was just a kind of commune in a very, very superficial way with, uh, with classical myth. It was also just one turn off the road to the villa I was staying at, so it was very <laughs> handy to, to get there. Um, and uh, what, I, what I kind of discovered when I got there was something that I didn't expect. It also had a very inauspicious start in that I, um, I I'd hired a, a Suzuki Jiminy uh, Jeep, which is what you do when you, you, you go to the Greek islands. Um, actually, it was, the, it was the first of three that we had that, that week, which we kept having to change because dodgy gearboxes and so on. <laughs> um, and um, I arrived at the site, uh, wandering around in my, my shorts and, and flip-flops. I very quickly smashed my big toe against an ancient and very hidden flagstone and was uh, bleeding profusely into the ground. Um, and then uh, sort of after I'd kind of stopped swearing, um, actually crying, but swearing sounds more macho, um, we, we did what all tourists do, took a photograph of, of my foot. Uh, my publisher actually wanted to put this photograph <laughs> in the book um, and I, um, I declined on, on grounds of vanity um, because I have some of the ugliest feet known to man and really no one wants to see it. Um, but it, it kind of amused me that at the time that I was kind of uh, leaving this trail of blood in my way because I wandered around the, the, the site of Gnosis and um, if the, the Minotaur had been there I would have been in big trouble. Um, but he wasn't. But what I did notice was a very suspiciously fresh painting of him because Gnosis is a very odd site. It's, uh, it's a site that actually has kind of uh, risen again from, from, it, from its own ruination. And, and that's because in 1900, it was, it was bought wholesale by an English antiquarian called Arthur Evans. Um, and uh, Evans had to, had to deal with a very complex excavation of this site. It uh, had originally been a palace that was built on many different levels and in the course of the excavation because it had been built on different levels as he started to remove the dirt and the earth there was real danger that the upper levels would collapse into the lower levels so he was looking at how how do i how do i find a way to shore this up and he started off with timber but timber would kind of rot over the course of a dig season then he tried using specially cut blocks of masonry it was time consuming it was very expensive and because he lived on site uh, he'd employed a, a cambridge educated architect called christopher doll um, to build him uh, a villa, a villa overlooking the site, which he called the Villa Ariadne, which was, uh, in terms of mythology, the, the name of King Minos' daughter. And what this architect introduced to Crete was uh, a previously unused building material, never been used before in Crete, reinforced concrete. And he watched as this villa emerged at rapid speeds on the hill overlooking the site, and then he thought, ah, this is how I can shore up the site. So that's what he started doing. And then he started getting carried away. He didn't start just rebuilding. He started redecorating. Um, and uh, started repainting the site, actually. He employed a father and son team of Swiss, orc- um, Swiss artists. Um, and using tiny fragments of frescoes that had been discovered in the excavations, they extrapolated art for, for the Minoans, for the Minoan civilization, which was the, what, what he christened the, the people who'd lived there. Um, I mean, basically, it's bonkers. You know, you go to the site and you you really struggle to understand what's going on. And I So he
0: was actually making it up. Yeah. He was sort of recreating buildings as he thought they might have been. He was inventing the history of it. He was inventing the
1: history based on his own own kind of Um, worldview. You know, at the start of the 20th century, obviously, war became very dominant. And, you know, he excavated the site over 30 years. So he developed... This, this reconstruction over 30 years through the First World War, actually. And he believed that uh, that, that this site um, was the birthplace of Western civilization. And not only that, but it was a peaceful birthplace. It was where free art had started as a matriarchal society. Um, and that, uh, that actually very further down the line into the 60s really attracted the hippies, which is when you yeah. go to Crete now, you can still pick up some of the, uh, the elements of the hippie yeah. trail. Because people perceive this as the as the kind of the a cherished vision of, of life before the fall, a kind of utopian bountiful island, which created our, our own civilization. So, because I knew nothing about this, it sort of the book came out of ignorance. I really thought, actually, here is a structure where you can tell a story from its origin point around so 2000 BC right up to the present day. Uh, you can bring it all yeah, the way yeah. through, and there are still interesting things you can say about it. In fact everybody who 's traveled here today has probably passed a fragment of, of gnosis uh, because in two thousand and thirteen Mark Wallinger, the contemporary artist, um, did an art project with, um, with transport for London, and every single tube station on the network has its own labyrinth somewhere at the entrance, which is inspired by the the coins and the, the artifacts that that came, that came out of the archaeological excavation so even today. This ancient yeah. building is still having an impact
0: on, on how people experience one of the most modern cities in the world that is fascinating, and I think what is also interesting is how that they have been re- these sites that as, you, as you explore them, have been reinterpreted perhaps or been taken up by another age quite out of the original context and used that's an interesting idea about, about about the labyrinth now as you say with, uh, with Mark Wallinger's th- uh, things all around the tube network here but it was interesting too reading um, about another great character Heinrich uh, Schliemann Schle- Schle- who, who went to Mycenae hmm. and uh, again rather an, well, more of an amateur even than Arthur Evans at Knossos and just went about his own thing but that fascinatingly, that because Mycenae is this great, or seen as a great, uh, you know, uh, centre for, for the for the warriors, the warriors of ancient of ancient times, ancient Greece, that people like the Nazis, like Goering and and, uh, and Goebbels, I think, you right, know, visited yeah. the site somehow to take take on board this magnificent. It's it's frightening and spooky, and yet. Very, these places remain redolent to people to to pick up the kind of the atmos as you say, as, as you go to. Yeah,
1: them. I mean, I think Mycenae is a very interesting site and a fantastic place to visit. And my take on it in the book is that, uh, as as you mentioned, the uh, the if you uh, one of the the, the things that people do when they go on the trail to Mycenae is stay at a guest house called uh, La Belle Hélène, um, which is uh, the beautiful Helen, which is obviously named after Helen of Troy. And um, and Helen of Troy was uh, was a maiden from the, the plains of Argos, where, uh, where Mycenae is, is is kind of set. And, and Mycenae was a staging post for the Trojan War. You know, that's where, that's in theory, Agamemnon's um, sort of palace fortress, and, and the place where he galvanized all of the all of the sort of disparate um, city-states of Greece to, to kind of go across the Dardanelles to, 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 to face the Trojans. Um, so that's what the Nazis came to commune with. They, they kind of uh, through a very, and Schliemann was complicit in this, possibly unknowingly complicit in this, but they saw uh, a line from the heroes of ancient Greece all the way up to the Aryan race. And they were fascinated that, and, you know, the, the sort of uh, Hitler and and his kind of coterie were uh, always using skewed interpretations of archaeology to 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 make points that that suited their own worldviews. Um, Hitler, of course, another building that I write about, was obsessed with the Forum in Rome. Um, and actually, after visiting the Forum, he returned to his chief architect Albert Speer um, in Berlin and said we will no longer use any modern materials in construction. We'll only use marble. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. st- materials that over the course of time will degrade in the same way that the Roman Forum has degraded. so that in a thousand years when my Third Reich has fallen, people will experience it in the same way they experienced the Roman Empire. And that's a very bizarre and unusual thing that he actually was, was conscious of his own, yeah. you know, was his own mortality exactly. <laughs> and, and,
0: and his building's own mortality, actually. But I think that's very interesting because one of the the things that James brings out very very strongly is the fact that many of these ancient sites particularly were theoretically inspired uh, by the gods, that they were devoted to, uh, to the gods. But so often those gods were perhaps... The human, being thems- the human being, themselves, the, the Caesar or the, or, or the ancient Greek king, who are seeing themselves in that light, or indeed the, the ancient Egyptian kings and such, which which and that that is very interesting that the way the human element has created that and the vanity of those people and how the vanity of those people inevitably falls falls to dust and indeed the same with the empires mm. you mentioned there the forum, and I think you you said before we came out that you hope that fallen glory would work perhaps as a travel companion. So that as you, when you arrived in Canossus, thought, I can't make sense of all this stuff. What is it? Now, we, we, thanks to you, can do that in these sites. And certainly for me, having been to the Forum in Rome on a couple of occasions and sort of well, that's amazing, that's it. And I've got the guidebook which tells me this was built by him and this was built for that. And it doesn't really add up as a story. But what you've done is, is bring that all the way through. And the way it's been reviewed and, and, and looked at again over the centuries, was that... Was that an exciting, you know, just thinking of that particular location, doing that research, somewhere that you, you visited, obviously, and knew? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was exciting, because uh, particularly if you're talking about someone like the Forum,
1: which obviously has been written about in so many different contexts. Yeah. Um, and actually, the challenge there is to... Find a new way of writing about it, find a new perspective on it, find something that will make someone who perhaps has visited it, perhaps is interested in Roman history, to engage with it in a different way. And I think one of the, the, the key things I do with the book, and one of the, the, the whole rationale behind it, was actually crossing all these arbitrary lines in history that we don't tend to cross. And by following the life of a building, you can do that because they, they outlive the people who created them. They outlive the empires that created them. Um, I mean, one of the, one of the things I would, in one of the sections of the book I write about is this idea that um, we all know the very kind of well-worn cliche that all political careers end in failure. Um, and, of course, all empires end in failure. You know, that, so far in human history, none has managed to survive. They, they all, in some respect, fall. But actually, the buildings outlive them. So buildings have the capacity to endure a kind of sustained humiliation, if you like, in their decline that people don't, empires don't, but, but they do and they, they sort of remain there as these kind of relics of, of kind of ideas and, uh, and, and ways that, that people have tried to engage with the world. Um, I mean, I've, I've, it's inter- I've, I've kind of talked uh, various points in the course of, of doing publicity for the book and I think one of the things that stood out the most to people is my view that we shouldn't try and rebuild ruins. That actually, we have to accept that they're gone. Um, and we think we can build re ruins because they're inanimate. And, you know, we can use, we can, in fact, we're so advanced now in terms of the technology we have that we can try and take the original materials, the original techniques, and recreate them exactly as they were. And I think that's, that's perfectly acceptable that we might think of doing that. But what it does do is take you away from the story of the building. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a dangerous potential in there that actually is something that makes historians very queasy is it takes down a root of denial you know, and obviously one of the most sort of cogent examples right now is Palmyra and what's happening yeah. there and, and there's schemes at the moment underway to look at rebuilding Palmyra through 3D printing which is incredible that we can do that, that we've got Mm -hmm. the capacity to do that, that we're seeding 3D cameras throughout the Middle East, getting people to take these photographs, and then we'll be able to build up a digital picture, and then using the original stone, recreate it. In fact, in Times Square and Trafalgar Square in April, they're going to reconstruct the temple, the the arch of the Temple of Bel, um, for people to visit and to to kind of see. Um, But there is talk about, well, once Islamic State is defeated, retreated, we can get back into Syria, would we rebuild Palmyra? my take is, no, we shouldn't, because right. actually what you do is erase the story of this kind of fundamentalist wave which passed through the Middle East and caused yeah, such destruction. Yeah, yeah. And actually, you should probably preserve ruins and the memory of ruins as a way of preserving the story of human history.
0: That's very interesting. Is the danger of us all becoming Arthur Evans or Schliemann thinking, well, we can make it look, but will it, will it be yeah. right? And a photocopy isn't, isn't the same as, right, as looking yeah. at the real McCoy. I think
1: it would tell us something about our own human cleverness, yeah. but it perhaps wouldn't tell us about Palmyra. You know i think that 's the danger I think uh, you know you can imagine so the tour buses, twenty years yeah. in the future, people pouring off to look at this three d printed port, city, city, which yeah. would be incredible. I mean I would go yeah, yeah. but it wouldn 't be but the thing. what about five hundred years in the future? would they remember it was three d printed yeah. or would they just say well, actually, nothing this ever happened to this site, yeah. Yeah. so I think that's that's an interesting. thing. So you're aspect. playing with history in that regard by what you yeah. build.
0: And, interestingly, just thinking, bringing it bringing it a bit closer to home, to London mm. and St Paul's. I, I used to live right next door to St Paul's in, in in the in the Barbican there, which, which was wonderful. So it was part of you know the well, it's part of the skyline for everybody moving around, particularly around the city area of, of this great city. And that, that interestingly, that that has changed not through the, the horrors of conflict, particularly thinking of most recent conflicts there in Iraq and Syria, but it did change. And I was fascinated to learn that the old St. Paul's, which I knew had been there obviously but before the fire of London but there was this whole backstory that they were thinking well we've got to rebuild it because it's very rickety and it's be- somebody's built this bit on and that bit on and added on and of course it's changed from being originally a Catholic institution to a Protestant, mm. that's a faci- another fascinating, so look right close to home Yeah, St. Paul's
1: is uh, old St. Paul's, which I write about it, it, it was a colossal structure I mean it was the building that dominated London um, and the, there's a fantastic drawing of London, an etching by Wenceslas Holler, called The Long View of London, which is a view from, um, it's kind of an elevated view from the the steeple of um, Southwark Church, um, drawn in the late 17th century. And it's this fantastic sweeping view of the Thames and these incredibly tightly packed buildings. This was obviously drawn just before the Great Fire. So it's a view of London that, that does not exist anymore, but obviously the perspective exists. Um, but dominating London is this one building, St Paul's, which was 600 feet long. Its spire was 489 feet high. It was, wasn't until the 20th century that any structure rose above that height again, and the spire was destroyed by lightning. And it, 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 originally, it was uh, the construction of it started around just after sort of the time of William the Conqueror. Um, it took about 200 years. When it was completed they immediately launched a campaign to save it which gives you a sense of the structural integrity of the building and again you know it it suffered various depredations fire lightning destroyed the steeple um it obviously went through the entire iconoclastic process of the reformation and uh, you know bits were torn down in fact even one one particular part of the cathedral um was torn down and reused to build somerset house um, which is not a particularly well-known thing um and and it got to this point very close to the, uh, the, the time of the fire um, where the, the new king, Charles II, had said we've got to do something about this building, this is an icon of London, but it's, it's a bit of a disgrace, what should we do? And, and this young upstart architect, Christopher Wren, came in and said, well I think we should put a dome on top of it and you know, we'll shore up some of the dodgier stuff, but I have a vision for it. Um, but that vision was obviously an adaptation of what was there and actually the the fire gave him the clean slate given the opportunity to to develop something entirely new which has become an icon you know one of effectively it's the first icon of the london skyline you know people who travel here in the tube you can see the the london skyline becomes a piece of branding and it's got the london eye on it it's got big ben on it it's got the the gherkin the shard now but st paul's was the beginning it was the origin point but actually it was built on the remains of something which had lasted for 600 years. And rain, as this upstart architect always said, architecture aims at eternity. Um, but St. Paul's during the Second World War was very close to being destroyed and it was specifically targeted yeah. by the Luftwaffe. Um, so, you know, there's, it's interesting that architects never, never really learn or don't want to learn. They always think what they'll create will last forever. Please I think the lesson this book is... It doesn't, it doesn't and accept that and, and, yeah. and, and, and enjoy the fact that it's not going to last forever
0: but it, but it, it is fascinating that how, how, how iconic those buildings can come I just remember in, uh, uh, at the turn of the millennium I was in London and uh, out partying with some friends on, on, on the South Bank and because of the number of fireworks that were set off that night suddenly I was looking at St Paul's and I think, you know, I've seen that before, of course, well, of course, I've seen the building before, but it was as it was the pho- famous photographs from the Blitz, mm. where it was covered with all those... Smoke. Smoke uh, and smoking. Yes. around and it. Yeah. I thought, wow. And so I think lots of people, you know, way, way too young, born since the war, etc., were were sharing, sharing that extraordinary moment. But it's interesting because that comes in the third section of your book, The King Is Dead, Long Live the King, when you're sort of saying, you're st- you, you know, you're looking at places where they start with a clean slate. You, you know, we're either, we've got rid of the old guard, or the old guard has been destroyed and forgotten. That's interesting how people still want to come in with with their new interpretation and mm. their new statement about their society or about themselves. I mean, was Wren's? It was his new building going to be about a new world or was it just about about him in a sense? Uh, yeah. he's
1: a, I think it was about him and about a new world. It was obviously a sort of Renaissance building, and it, you know, he was. It was. Uh, the ability to take what had been a gothic construction old st paul's cathedral and replace it with something which was neoclassical which was looking back to looking back to the buildings that the roman empire and the greeks produced um so that was obviously part of his methodology but at the same time actually interestingly he was the first architect who ever managed to build a cathedral in england in the space of his own lifetime
0: Ah, every other
1: architect died and handed (laughs) it on to somebody else uh, that has anything to do with the speed of English builders? I don't know. I don't know. Um, but it's, it's quite a, a strange and unusual fact. Yeah. And He, he, he actually um, had his son place the final stone um, sort of 350 feet above London That's on really the
0: top of it. But. We, we've touched on Knossos, uh, Mycenae, uh, the, the, the Forum in Rome, and and of course... Uh, uh, St. Paul's here in London but your book covers way wilder and wider places which is fascinating and I just wondered if you wouldn't mind telling us a little bit about what your, your chapter again in this section, uh, the third section, the King is Dead, Long Live the King but the journey to the centre of the world and this is to, to Mongolia, mm. to Karakorum and now one thing which just struck me uh, as someone who's written a couple of books myself and works as a journalist, the level of research that you've put yourself through, okay you knew you were interested in the, in the uh, world Of antiquity uh, in European myth, etc., and indeed, obviously, uh, local architecture, if you like. But going off into those realms of, of, of study, that's it's, it's a huge project.
1: It was brutal, I think <laughs> it's, it's, it's safe to say. Um, and in, in a way, actually, writing about someone like Karakoram, which has not been written about very much, was much easier, okay. than writing about the, the better known places, um, because. There were narrow avenue, narrower avenues of research to go down, um, slightly more complex avenues sometimes but but narrower avenues and you kind of felt that you were creating something that didn 't necessarily exist so much in other places so in a way, I found that refreshing to do it um, and i mean i, I freely admit i 've not been to all the places that I write about no. in, in this book and i 've not been to I've not, uh, but it 's definitely if I had to have a sort of bucket list of places I want to go to, this would definitely be it. And actually Karakoran now is is kind of horrible. It's a sort of Soviet um, sort of uh, mining town. Um, the only remnant of the structure I write about is this kind of stone tortoise with a very morose expression in its face, um, which has Buddhist um, prayer scarves yeah. tied to its back and that 's what people do they, to, they come to the site and uh, sort of tie them there um, but actually it 's more exploring the Mongolian steppes, which are you know fascinating, still incredibly remote, um, not particularly well traveled the point of the, the chapter I write about in the book is this, this, was the, this was the capital of the world for a while, you know, the, the empire that Genghis Khan controlled um, if you put it in world terms today would be I mean it was, it was the largest contiguous land empire ever um, it, it was encompassed now it would encompass probably half of the world's population you know, when you're bringing in China and sort of other areas of that and sort of, like that, and, and sort of um, bits of the subcontinent um, but, but what they constructed and what was interesting about, uh, about this building was that they were nomad people. So it was quite unusual for nomad people yeah. to put down roots. And actually it wasn't, Genghis Khan initiated this, this capital, which was something entirely new to, to the, the Mongol people to actually have a, a set place uh, to go to. Um, but it was his son Ogade who, who really took it on to, to the next level, um, and it was because he'd been he'd been sort of told by his father's advisor, who became his advisor, that you can you can conquer the world on horseback, but you can't rule it. So you needed somewhere to, to set down roots, um, and they sort of set down roots, and they built this um, this kind of tower uh, tower temple, which were used for ceremonial occasions, um, but actually. even the royal family lived in a tent out the back and they only used it when dignitaries would come or people would come from the world but they still kept this nomad lifestyle Um, and you can track that all the way to the the sort of Mongols obviously conquered much of China Um, they built on the site of the present day Beijing and uh, this was Kublai Khan did the same thing in the site of Beijing created this structure but then imported grass from the steppes Grew it there and lived in a tent out the back. So they never really quite managed to, to lose that kind of nomad sense, which I think is actually quite sweet in a way. Yeah. But the only time anyone's ever called Genghis Khan is descendants sweet, but um, yeah.
0: <laughs> what I think was, it was interesting, and that, and that particular story brings, brings it out a lot, is particularly as, as we're here at a, at, a, at a travel show, is how we can basically, apart from those perhaps war zones, we, you know, we can fly all over the world, visit most of these sites uh, you know, that you, 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 you've written about, and you yourself have flown down from, from, from mm. Edinburgh this morning to be with us, which is great. But what is extraordinary, there are a couple of stories just in that chapter about the, the, the tent at the centre of the world, of people who go from, from Europe Taking that journey across that whole uncharted territory, if you like, to meet the great khan's, whether it was Genghis or his or mm. his successors. Well, I mean that must have been interesting discovering there's, there's this this wonderful guy um, William of Rubruk, Rubruk, he's Flemish, I think.
1: Yes, that's right. I think that that's probably one of my favourite stories in the book. Is this the ultimate straight man, this Franciscan friar? Who sets off with a letter from the French king and from the Pope, um, and he's he's basically moving into Mongol territory because he's heard that there's a group of Christians who've been captured and are being kept as slaves by a Mongol prince, um, and through a series of bizarre diplomatic misunderstandings, he ends up going on a seven thousand mile odyssey to the to to Inner Mongolia, um, and. Uh, Meets a series of kind of higher people higher up in the Mongolian hierarchy on the way, all of whom engage him in drinking games um, you know he 's drinking sort of mare's milk and fermented various different fermented things that they end up drinking um, and It culminates in this fantastic, I think utterly unprecedented event in world history um, where the great can makes this Christian Franciscan friar. Um, partner up with uh, a sort of Muslim cleric to argue about God against a group of Buddhist uh, clerics. Really, it's the, 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 the Mongolians were quite happy, magpie-like, to pick the religion from everywhere. So they said, okay, have this debate, and I, as the great can, will decide who's right. And the debate went through several rounds, so they would talk about different aspects of, of, of God and, and, you know, his, um, his omnipotence and his role and, on earth and his role in, in individual lives and spirituality. Um, but between each round, they had to drink. And it ended up with the, the Christians and the Muslims arm in arm singing, or the Buddhists who'd lost the debate sat in the corner morose. I just think... What what a great way of dealing with nowadays exactly a yeah. spiritual debate maybe that should be reinstituted
0: that is fantastic a brilliant story and the last section part four of the book you you title we got these brilliant titles you say utopia I say dystopia some very interesting stories again there and the, the one the first one is called Little Brothers Big Brother House and this is about a, 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 the a Panopticon in St. Petersburg, which is fascinating. Mm. Designed by an Englishman, Samuel Bentham, brother of the very famous freethinker, end of the 18th, early 19th century thinker, Jeremy Bentham, of course. And it's an amazing story about these two brothers working together, trying to force their design of a building on the rest of the world. But it seems coming from benign ideas, but ultimately being a little, sounding a little bit dodgy, hence you calling it little brother was was, was Samuel, but his big brother has that idea of of, of sort of controlling people and the way ideas are picked up and, and architecture can be used. That's as right. a way of oppression. The,
1: the, the last part of the book is really about the idea that, um, particularly as we move toward the modern world, uh, this concept developed that you could change people's behavior through architecture. And that normally from, in, from a good way. It was you know, to make people more wealthy or behave better or to reform criminals. And, and the Panopticon was, was really, it started off as a. a a way of having a small number of staff monitor production and Jeremy Bentham this was his his brother Samuel's idea and said actually this is this is possibly a design for prisons is that you could have this uh, this idea that you create through your architectural design uh, a central point where every prisoner thinks they are being viewed at all times because they don't know if they are or not but they think they are and as a result that will change their behavior. And it was about trying to reform behavior and make them better. People, obviously, as we move through time, and, uh, and they never managed to build this successfully. It was a, a version of it was built in St. Petersburg. It was destroyed by fire. Um, not, I think, by the people who were there, but who knows? Uh, I think it was really just a, a, a boiler spark, and they built it out of wood. Um, but actually, if you bring it up to, to kind of modern day, uh, it, there was a, obviously the famous French uh, theorist, Foucault, looked at this and said, this This is a terrible terrible thing they've come up with the idea of the surveillance society that the feeling of being watched changes your behavior and changes your behavior in a not benign way but actually in a very negative and a very you know it it utterly erodes and destroys civil liberties Um, and one of the things i talk about in the book is actually we've got to the point now um, where the technology exists with smartphones with um, with the way we are so linked into the internet for all of us to be monitoring each other. And there are instances, South Korea is actually an example, where this kind of viral shaming of people who behave yeah. in inappropriate ways has become commonplace. Um, and there's a technology now to say, you know, people engaging in antisocial behavior, littering, not picking up dog mess, things like that. You could be filming it. You could be sending it into a central source and being paid for informing. Yeah. And. That would then change people's behavior because they'd always feel they were they were God. under surveillance in some way which is a kind of terrifying so really, big, you know
0: all, all, all well is coming coming exactly well but it, yeah. internationally and but globally. internationally yeah. Oh,
1: yeah
0: terrifying this is uh, what we, 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 we must open the floor for 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 your guests in a moment but it's just i just wanted to touch on this the story of kowloon mm. which i only heard of As a place, you know, I knew nothing about it, which is one of the joys of this book that it takes me into this place which now no longer exists. There is still buildings there, but there's this kind of vision of a kind of a drug addled interpretation of of the high rise of of modern day Hong Kong.
1: Yeah, I mean, Kowloon, the Kowloon Wall City, um, in its modern incarnation, before it was destroyed, was the most densely populated place on earth. So it had 33,000 people in an area that was less than a hundredth of a square mile in size, which is just unfathomable. Um, And it was on the mainland of Hong Kong. And the reason it was in this area that was less than a hundredth of a square mile in size is because it it effectively grew out of a piece of contested territory, which was contested between Britain and China. Um, And it was originally built in the mid 19th century by the Chinese to police the opium trade, and Britain was effectively the purveyor of the opium trade into China. You know, they, we were we were bringing it in and selling it, um, mostly because it was the only thing we could have as an equivalent to tea that wasn't silver, and we were depleting our silver, um, our silver deposits. Um, so this had been created by by the Chinese um, as a fortress, as a walled city, to basically look at Hong Kong and say, we are watching you to make sure that you're not dealing opium to, yeah. obviously um, and Britain took over more territory, took over mainland territory but it still remained contested um, then the British moved the Chinese out and in the second world war the Japanese actually dismantled the wall and used it to build, a, to build an airfield but after the second world war Chinese refugees gravitated to this spot of ground and created a, a refugee camp um and the British moved in to, to sort of to, to clear them away and it caused an international incident with the new People's Republic of China. And any time Britain tried to intervene in this space, it kept causing international incidents. So it basically became this lawless, unregulated, but still working sort of anarchist society. And as Hong Kong developed high rises, so too did Kowloon Wall City. I mean these got to with foundations that were barely a few feet deep. Got to 13 or 14 story buildings um so it, i but for all of the time before britain and china agreed the handover back of hong kong it was used by the chinese as a pawn as a way to make a political point and that's what created this kind of strange anarchist society and obviously the irony is that you had a place that was originally created to police the opium trade became the center of the heroin trade yeah. in hong kong and it was the home of all of the triad gangs. You know, five or six based themselves out of this, out of this place. So it was a really fascinating, unusual, bizarre Bizarre environment, and
0: your writing creates this vision of an extraordinary place, out of almost like out of a Terry Gilliam movie, you know, of, of endlessly mm. rising uh, and terribly uh, fragile buildings, with, with the one postman for thirty thousand people wandering yeah. over these rickety bricks. That's extraordinary. That's, I
1: mean, Ridley Scott apparently based Blade Runner on on the oh, city. Oh, did he? Yeah. Oh, that Because it's. It was known as the city of darkness because yeah. no light got down into its streets. Oh, yeah. Which, of, of course, is as so, it is in so the close film. together.
0: Fascinating. Well, thank you, really, Scott, for coming. <laughs> no, I'm sure many of you will, will be getting annoyed with me for, for, for hogging uh, Jamie. Um, please, we have Roddy here, the lovely Roddy, with microphone. If anybody has a question, which this gentleman over here has, great. Thank you very much. Absolutely fascinating. I'm intrigued by your idea that you wouldn't restore or recreate somewhere like Palmyra. Can I ask you about a couple of. Uh, specific places uh, that my wife and I have been to recently. One is the bridge at Mostar. Would you not have rebuilt it? And the other is the Nazi parade ground in Nuremberg. There seem to be three options. Restore it, pull it down, or let it rot. And let it rot seems to be the current option. What mm. would you do with either of those? I, I, I mean, Mostar
1: is obviously a tricky one. Uh, anything involving bridges which might help people get from one place to another, there, there tends to be a practical um, requirement for it um i mean that that's that's a that's a tricky one i think probably what they did was appropriate um i think it met with um with unesco regulations on on how you would go about it um i mean i i think it's a it's a kind of loose argument about are we going to forget what happened there i suspect in the former yugoslavia there's so much there that we're not going to forget about what happened uh, you know in that sort of arena of conflict um the the zeppelin fields sorry it was the nuremberg um that's an interesting one hitler i think would have liked to have seen it rot he uh, and that's why i mentioned the zeppelin fields he actually had his architect draw uh, a schematic of what the zeppelin field would have looked like in in sort of in its ruinous state so he was attracted to that sort of thing Um, it it kind of depends on where you're coming from about do you want him to be happy do you want to actually level it completely Um, I would say there's never really a rationale for utterly destroying something Um, but if it is destroyed then you have to think very carefully about what you do and and how you react to it and how you then recreate or not Um, I mean a good example is the Buddhas of Bamiyan in Afghanistan which were obviously blown up by the Taliban and actually, the local people want to rebuild them. And they want to rebuild them because it's going to help them for tourist industry, um, you know, when there's stability there. UNESCO are saying, we don't want you really touching this uh, because you won't do it properly and it'll look terrible. Um, so it's, the, the politics are incredibly complex. My own, my own personal view is they are so complex that actually I would rather we kept telling the stories about these places um, because I think the danger of getting it wrong is quite... Is quite uh, it's quite large, quite high.
0: Following on from that, then temples, temples of Abu Simnel when they were flooded and rebuilt. Yeah, um,
1: I think I think it's that the, the same thing applies. You you have to look very deeply into the rationale for why you would do it. Uh, you know, what's your thought process for it? What's the history behind it? Um, And what might the impact be, not just within our lifetimes, actually, but within other people's lifetimes, within four or five generations? Is there the danger that we lose the story of the destruction? And if the answer to that is yes, then I would think very carefully about whether we pursued that.
0: I'm coming. He's off. (laughs) There he goes. You mentioned briefly about Foucault and the Panopticon, and I was just wondering, what are your personal views on it?
1: On on the Panopticon? Um, I, I, I studied law at university, actually, and one of the main things I studied was I, I did a, a lot about the Panopticon. I'm, I'm very interested in it. Um, I, I believe in civil liberties, I believe that what the Benthams were trying to do was incredibly noble and they really genuinely thought they were improving things. Um, but I do probably subscribe to the notion that it, it has opened a bit of a Pandora's box, this idea about prior to the, the inception, of the Panopticum, panopticism, that idea, the state could control the body but it couldn't control the mind. And actually this did open the, open the door to how might you control the mind of individuals. And I do think technology, we're in a very scary place in technology now. We don't know the impact of it. Um, and, I, yeah, I, I kind of, I, I'm more, more side with Foucault about the idea that, that the Panopticon is a, is a scary
0: thing and we should, we should be careful about how we employ it. I think I'd agree with you on that. I mean, it seems like a, a, a nice idea and you just think it's just a little bit, it's just a little bit dangerous you know yeah. one thing observing prisons but taking that outside it suddenly becomes it is the mm. big brother very very daunting now have we have that let's circle around rod is off there he goes gentleman over there in black thank you I just wondered if you had any places closer to home that you could talk about that we could perhaps uh, go uh, on a weekend trip from london or whatever St. Paul's, obviously. You can, you can
1: walk across uh, the Millennium Bridge and imagine what, what the old building would have looked like. Uh, you can go to the British Museum and see the long view. Um, I, I, if you wanted to make a trip up to Scotland, uh, there's Cardross Seminary, uh, which is a fascinating building, which was uh, a sort of Catholic seminary. It was built um, on a hillside just outside um, Helensborough um, uh, in the 1960s. And it was this brutalist, modernist piece of architecture. Um, but actually, it was built at exactly the time that the Vatican decided that Catholic priests shouldn't be educated out with communities, they should be educated within communities. So, the moment it was built, it suddenly became effectively uh, uh, useless um, as a structure. Um, also, its architect famously said he really wished he could build his buildings inside. Which meant that it wasn't very good at water. Um, well, it was very good at water retention, whatever the opposite of water retention is. So it leaked quite badly. Um, but it is the most fascinating ruin to visit. Um, it's actually about to, in March, to be used as a as a sort of um, uh, interactive arts experience, where you can walk through the ruin, this kind of modernist ruin, um, at the same time as music is playing and there's a light show. Um, and that, I find that fascinating that that's somewhere that, uh, you know, it only lasted for sort of 10, 15 years. Um, you know, it was created on this wave of post-war modernist optimism and very quickly was uh, became ruinous. Then it became a place for local kids to go and, you know, smoke drugs and illicitly drink. Um, it was briefly a sort of drug rehabilitation center. It's covered in the most fantastic graffiti right now, actually. It's, you know, really that's another way of kind of artistic expression that, that has colonized it. Um, and it looks like a kind of spaceship has crash-landed into this forest, uh, as I say, in the, in the, sort of the, the hills above Um It's utterly fascinating and, and it's, it's there to visit, as a place to go and see. And that's a good example of a kind of modern ruin that, that you can engage with.
0: Fantastic. Right folks, in fact, we're just out of time. You are all going to be lucky enough, uh, if you should, and I think you should, to get Jamie to sign a copy of Fallen Glory for you. He'll just be over there at the, the Stanford's uh, desk, around there, in a moment or two. Thank you all very much indeed for coming and hearing Jamie talk about his fascinating book. Most of all, thank you for coming down from Edinburgh, Thanks Jamie. It's been thank brilliant you. meeting you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you all very much indeed.